You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. 1 Corinthians 11 is our text, so I invite you to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 11, we'll read the full text this morning, starting in verse 23, but then the sermon will focus really on verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Let's ask the Lord to help us understand these words and apply it to our hearts this morning, shall we? Go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this text and for the Lord's Supper that you have instituted in our churches and in the body of Christ to remember what he's done. And we pray that, that this observance and understanding more of what's taking place here today through this, through this ordinance, that th- this would help us to treasure Christ more and, and value him and exalt him and worship him and commit to love him with all of our hearts. So bless now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have any of you had the privilege of visiting the USS Arizona Memorial in Pearl Harbor? Anyone been able to do that? Yeah. Uh, Kate and I did that um, on our honeymoon. We actually went to Hawaii and we visited Pearl Harbor and took the, the boat, the ferry out to the Arizona Memorial. And it was very sobering, as if you've been there, you know. Very somber. Uh, the Arizona was one of, uh, one of the ships that was attacked in Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, when the Japanese surprised the Americans, really bringing us into the, the war, World War II. And this ship sunk so quickly and with a, an incredible loss of life. 1,177 sailors lost their lives, and over 900 of them went down with the ship. Uh, when we were there several years ago, um, the ship is still leaking oil. And so you come, and there's, there's the oil smell still. As you can see in the picture, the, the, the shallow depth of the bay, uh, the harbor there means that, that the ship's outline rests just a few feet beneath the surface. One of the gun turrets is actually sticking up out of the water. And it's, it's just got this sacred feel to it, somber, to reflect on what these men and women, mostly men at that time, gave and the memorial opened in 1962, 
and they have thousands of guests that come through. And there are three parts to the memorial. The far end of it is known as the shrine room, and this is what the wall looks like. It's a wall of marble. And as you can see, there are a number of names inscribed on there, all the names of those who went down with the ship. The boxes in the front left and the front right are those who were interred later with their crewmates. And it it was a very moving experience for us. I'm sure it was for you as well. And a memorial like this helps us to remember the past. It tells a story of sacrifice and loss, of courage and ultimately of triumph. And certainly the USS Arizona Memorial does that. And there are a number of other things there at Pearl Harbor that you can go see and reflect on. And it's certainly true also of the Lord's table that we celebrate today. This memorial meal reminds us and tells the story of sacrifice and loss, of courage, but ultimately of triumph. Jesus commands us to observe the Lord's table. He gave us the set of instructions before he went to the cross. And so we observe the Lord's table in remembrance of Christ. That's why we call it a memorial. We don't believe that there's a mystical spirituality to it. It's a reminder, a memorial to what Christ has done. And because he's commanded us to do this, this is one of the two ordinances of the church, along with baptism. And we observe the Lord's table regularly. We do it at the first Sunday of the month. Usually, occasionally, we we skip it for various reasons. But the regular observance of the Lord's table helps us to remember our Savior. And it invites a response within us. We don't just observe the table and, and eat the bread and drink the cup and then pretend like nothing happened. There's a lot of symbolism and a lot of meaning that's taking place here today. And our theme, as I mentioned a moment ago, this year has been treasuring Christ. And the table helps us to treasure Christ. And a proper observance will increase our love for him. So let's explore this idea in more detail. How does the Lord's table help us to treasure Christ? In this text, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, this text gives us three answers, three ways that the Lord's table helps us to treasure Christ. The first is in verses 24 through 25, simply by remembering Jesus' sacrifice. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so there are two components, two parts to this observance, the bread and the cup. And both of these direct our attention to the sacrifice of Jesus and the cross. The bread reminds us that his body was broken on the cross. And at the Last Supper, there's a lot of symbolism going on at that Passover meal that we don't have time to get into today, maybe sometime in the future. But what Jesus did is at the right moment of the, the, the meal and the routine there, he took the bread and he broke it in front of them. And it wasn't simply like, okay, here, I'm going to rip it and give it to you because I need to distribute it. It was a symbolic act of ripping the bread. He was foreshadowing 
the graphic picture of what would happen to his own body. He was foreshadowing what would take place to him. His body was torn. Isaiah 50 says it was, it was broken beyond recognition. Isaiah 53 discusses that as well. And, and there's a number of ways that we could reflect on the death of Christ and what he suffered on the cross. But what I'd like to do today is simply read to you a compiled story of the crucifixion drawn from several uh, accounts, kind of merged into one flowing story. So this is all drawn from Scripture, but it's not necessarily one particular gospel. And I'd like us to just meditate for a few moments on what Jesus did and what he suffered for us. And so we pick up the narrative in the Garden of Gethsemane right after Jesus has been arrested. Having arrested him, they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now the chief priests and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent and and answered nothing. And the high priest said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said to him, It is as you said, you rightly say that I am. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy he's spoken. What do you think? They all condemned him and said, he's deserving of death. Then some began to spit in his face and to blindfold him and to beat him. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Immediately when morning came, as soon as it was day, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council And all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to bring him to death. And when they had bound Jesus, the whole multitude of them arose and led him away from Caiaphas to the praetorium and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And while he was being accused of many things by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if Jesus were a Galilean, and as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Then Herod questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, 
arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner, a robber named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder and a certain rebellion made in the city. Pilate said, But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? But the chief priests and the elders stirred up the crowd so that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Then they all cried, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber and an insurrectionist. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered Jesus to them to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus and led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison around him and they stripped him put a scarlet robe on him and they clothed him with purple and when they had twisted a crown of thorns they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand and began to salute him saying hail king of the Jews and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him and worshipped him then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head and when they had mocked him they took the purple robe off of him and put his own clothes back on him and led him away to be crucified. And he, bearing his cross, went out. And when they had come to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he would not drink. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on his cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I'm the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. 
Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. That's what the bread symbolizes. I'm afraid that so often we get familiar with the cross. We see it on our jewelry and on our signs. And we forget what it was like. This memorial is meant to remind us to not forget the depths that Jesus descended to for you and for me. But the cross wasn't just a mere physical punishment, as painful as that was. When Jesus shed his blood, atonement was being made. And verse 25 shows us that the cup reminds us that Jesus' blood forgives sins. Atonement answers the question, how are sins paid for? Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And when Jesus shed his blood on that cross... It wasn't just one man and his last breaths of life going away. It was divine justice being satisfied for all eternity, for every sinner who has ever lived. Verse 25 here notes that Jesus' blood initiated the new covenant. And the new covenant was predicted in the Old Testament. It contained many wonderful promises, including the promise of forgiveness of sins and a new heart indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus shed his blood, he ratified, he opened this covenant between God and humanity. And we are the beneficiaries. Because anyone who wishes to come near to God must have their sins paid for. And Jesus said, I died and shed my blood so that you might live. Ephesians 1, 7 says that in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. As the hymn says, what a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. And when we truly see and glimpse the cross in its, in its rugged beauty and desecration at the same time, we wonder what, what's the appropriate response and there are many. Gratitude, certainly, that we rejoice and give thanks that we have life through his death. Humility is certainly in order. There is no cause for boasting. There is nothing that commends you to God. Jesus died for you and for your crimes. A response of love, certainly, is appropriate, that we love Christ and letting his sacrifice draw us deeper into his very heart. So we can love him in return. He, we love him, First John writes, because he first loved us. And so as we celebrate the Lord's table, we're treasuring Christ, not simply by doing this routine or doing these things, but, but by remembering Jesus' sacrifice. But second, we're proclaiming Christ's death. Verse 26 says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. That word proclaim is used in Colossians 1.28 of Paul's ministry. I proclaim Christ. I make the word about him spread broadly. I'm announcing him to everyone. 
What are we doing? What are we proclaiming when we eat and drink these elements? We are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. That the Lord didn't just die and give himself for us, but that forgiveness of sins is here and that anyone who is a sinner can be saved by the sacrifice of Jesus. We are proclaiming his death and remembering the reason why Jesus went to the cross. Jesus died, why? Because all have sinned. The scriptures are very clear from Psalms, from Romans, from Galatians, from other passages, every person has sinned. Sin is breaking God's law. And no matter how good you consider yourself to be, you are still a sinner. Let me prove it to you. Let's just take the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon perhaps, Matthew 5 through 7, and I'll pick just at, kind of at random four things, four commandments that he gave. Let's see how well we do. You are a sinner if you have been angry with another person without a just reason. Second, you have lusted sexually for someone who's not your spouse. You're a sinner if you've done that. You're a sinner, third, if you have loved treasure on earth more than treasure in heaven. Fourth, you're a sinner if you've cast judgment on another person. How we doing? Not good. There is none righteous, no, not one, And that's just a sampling. That's just four commands that the Bible gives. Four parts of the ultimate standard of righteousness that God has. Now, we tend to excuse sin, don't we? I do that. You kind of minimize it. You you don't think about it anymore. It doesn't affect me, right? Well, even if we were just to sin one time a day, that would be pretty good. But even just one sin a day, if you live for 20 years, that's like 8,000 sins. If you live for 60 years, do the math, because I can't do it. That's a lot of sins. So even if you're doing pretty good every day and just doing one sin a day, you are still a transgressor of the law by the thousands. By the thousands. If you have a thousand speeding tickets on your record, I don't think that's possible. Because I think there are ways that the government intervenes before that. Sin isn't simply what we do on the outside, it extends to the attitudes of our hearts. So it it really isn't a question of how much we've sinned, because we've sinned enough. We all sin enough. The question now is, what do I deserve because of my sin? That's really the question. The Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Isaiah 59.2, sin separates you from your God. A wage is something you earned by your performance. So by our performance, by our sinfulness, we have rightly and justly clocked in and accumulated death and hell. So why did Jesus die? He died because all sinned. He also died because he alone could pay for that sin. Because the the fact of the matter is sin has to be paid for. If you get a traffic ticket and you have to go stand before court, you know, you hopefully have a few hundred dollars that you could pay for that. Certainly don't call me. I'm not paying your traffic tickets. But when we stand before God's court and we have thousands of charges against us to answer for our crimes, is there anything that you can offer to an eternal God that'll actually pay for your own sin? Does God accept money? Is God jealous of power that he needs a position 
my friend, there's nothing you can do to give God enough payment to satisfy his justice against you. That's why Jesus died. Jesus died as the payment for sin. And he didn't do this because he was coerced or because he was made to or because he lost a divine bet. He did this because he went willingly because he loves us. I came across this dialogue this week. Um, John Flavel was a Puritan pastor. He lived in the 1600s. And like many of these Puritan men, they, they wrote with incredible depth and what he did is he sketched what an imaginary conversation would have been like between father and son in eternity past as they were talking about man's sin condition. And it's imaginary, okay? He's taking creative liberties with it. But what it does is this shows us the incredible love of Jesus. Here's what he wrote. The father speaks. My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction on them, or I will suffer my just, or I will satisfy my justice by eternally punishing them. What shall be done for these souls? The son replies, O my father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their guarantee. Bring all your bills that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand you will require it. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than they suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. The father replies, but my son, if you undertake for them, you must pay the last penny. Expect no discounts. If I spare them, I will not spare you. The son says, I am willing, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all to me. I am able to pay their debt. And though it will undo me, though it will impoverish all my riches and empty all my accounts, yet am I content to undertake it. Jesus died because he alone can pay for sin. The American folk hymn says, what wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul. And Jesus' death paid for sin, but the Bible also is very clear that Jesus' payment does not automatically apply to your account. And that's where salvation comes in. Jesus died to offer salvation as a gift. You have a choice to make now because sin must be paid for. So you can either try to stand before God on the basis of your own style of payment or you can accept the payment of someone else. That's the beautiful exchange of the gospel. If, if you started to get behind on your mortgage and you missed a payment, and you missed a second payment. And the mortgage company said, it's okay, we'll wait. That would be incredibly gracious, wouldn't it? And they waited for months and months and months until finally there was several years of back pay accumulated. And there's too great a debt. You, you don't have enough money to pay for it. And they finally call you in and say, all right, it's time. We've been gracious long enough. We've been patient long enough. It's time to pay. What do you do? Your bank account is empty. You have no resources. You're about to lose the only equity you have. And then in that scenario, 
someone else walks into the room and says, I'll write the check now. I've got the Venmo pulled up, I'll, I'll pay it all. What person would say, no, you know, I think I'd rather lose my house and lose everything than let you pay for me. What pride and arrogance that would be to resist a free payment on your behalf simply because you didn't do it yourself. And yet it breaks my heart. There are so many people in our world today that are walking around saying, no, I don't want that free payment. I'll I'll do it myself. And they're doomed. Jesus died so that you don't have to make the payment. And the good news is you could never make the payment, so this is the only way you can do it anyway. So why are we not receiving him? And I, I praise God for many of you that have accepted Christ. God is patiently waiting. Second uh, Peter 3 says, he's waiting right now for men and women to come to Jesus for salvation. And what the Lord's table does is it calls us to reflect on the gospel, to remember that though we have been saints maybe for 70 or 80 years, we're still a sinner by birth and a sinner by trade, and yet it's not our destiny any longer. And if you're here today and you've never accepted Christ, maybe you've never set foot in this building, this this memorial isn't for you. You can't remember something that you've not partaken of. But the truth of the gospel and the hope of the gospel is that you can accept Christ today. You don't have to climb some mountain, don't have to travel to some city, don't have to pay some amount of money. You just need to believe Romans 10, 13, if you confess with your mouth, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a gospel promise. For those of us who have believed and we celebrate this by, by proclaiming Christ's death, we have to remember too that we never outgrow the need of the gospel. All of our problems come back to the fact that we've not fully implemented and applied the gospel to our lives. That's what Jerry Bridges talks about when he says to appropriate the gospel, to take it, to receive it, to let it flesh out its beautiful impact in our hearts. Rehearsing the gospel, preaching it to ourselves day after day, keeps us grounded in the truth and tethered to Christ. Because as Colossians 2, 6, and 7 says, we continue to walk in the same way that we were entered into the race. Just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so also walk in him, rooted, grounded in the faith, tethered to Christ. The Lord's table helps us then to remember the gospel message, liberating sinners day after day in our world. Third, the Lord's table helps us to treasure Christ by anticipating Jesus' return. And this is one of, of the three main points. This is the one that we don't talk about a lot. And really, this comes down to just three little words at the end of verse 26. Look at it with me. The end of verse 26 says, till he comes. And each of those words has significance. How so? Well, first, we celebrate a living Savior. He is alive. And this is the huge difference between the Lord's table and every other memorial that we have. Even over sacred memorials, we would say, like the one at Pearl Harbor. Those memorials commemorate the dead. This one commemorates the living one. He is risen indeed. That's what our hope is based on. 
Not a dead Savior who lived thousands of years ago and gave us a book to follow the rules. It's a living Savior that we are now become his body. We are alive in Christ. And so the gospel is not just the story of Jesus' death. It's the story of his resurrection from the dead. We celebrate a living Savior. And what is this living Savior going to do? Well, because he's alive, someday he will return. Over and over again, the New Testament points us forward to that day. In fact, our faith is not just backward-looking, but forward-reaching. And if we forget that Jesus is alive and he's coming back, we can tend to get so caught up in the facts of the past that we miss the beauty of the future. Jesus will return. And when he returns... He will rescue those who believe in him. He came the first time as a suffering servant. He comes the second time as a conquering king. Hebrews 9.28, Christ, having offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He will return. And so our response is to eagerly wait for him. The Lord's table then encourages us to be faithful as we wait. And that's that little word, till. Because we're not here in this moment forever. We're in an already not yet state. We already have these benefits in the future that we're looking to, and yet we're not yet there. And this memorial is for a set period of time with a hand in the past and a hand in the future saying, keep tethered to both. We are sojourners here on earth until Jesus returns. And I wish I could stand here and tell you this date is when the Lord is coming back. But we can't. We don't know when he will return. And sometimes not seeing the finish line makes it difficult to soldier on. But the Lord Jesus gives us grace day after day. He calls us to be faithful, to endure hardship as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And it's our love for him that motivates our faithfulness. As we saw in Colossians chapter 2, if we're simply checking off boxes or going through religious observances or trying to find God through experiences, we will slowly fall away. But it's through the grace of our Lord and through our love for him that our faithfulness continues to grow. And every time we come to this table, we're encouraged, yes, to look at the past, but to look to the future, to anticipate his coming, to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know what problems you have that you carried with you. I don't know what experiences you had the last couple weeks that devastated you. But the fact of the matter is it didn't surprise Jesus. And he's going to come back to rescue you. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we, we do want to grow in our treasuring of Christ. And ultimately, I think we can simplify all of this to one little phrase. The Lord's table helps us to treasure Christ by resetting our hearts on Christ. We come in with the the hustle and the bustle, especially this time of year, and there's a lot of things to do and a lot of things to accomplish, and and what it does is it calls us to just sit, to be still, to meditate, and to look at your Savior, to stop and reflect on his death, to rehearse the beautiful truths of the gospel that that first saved us and now continues to sanctify us, to to lift our weary eyes to our glorious future with the risen Savior. Eating this bread 
in drinking this cup resets our hearts on Christ. And so before we observe this table, I have two appeals to make. Number one, if you do not know Jesus as Savior, receive him today. 2 Corinthians 6.2, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. And sometimes in our culture, we're so accommodating that we're like, hey, you know, here's the gospel, but if you don't want it, that's fine, not a problem. You know, you just think about it for like the next 10 years, no big deal. And, and, and the Bible is sitting here saying, you need to make a decision. Today is the day. Today salvation has come. And if the Spirit of God is working in your heart and you don't know Christ, today's the day. If you're an unbeliever in our midst, you can't partake of this because this isn't for you, but it can be for you. You can receive the Lord Jesus today. Second appeal to us who believe. Verse 28 goes on to say, let a man examine himself. And so as we have a few moments of silence coming, examine your heart. Ask the Lord to expose to your sight anything that's not pleasing to Christ and and confess that and forsake that sin, repent of it. And if the Lord exposes something and you say, no, I want to hold on to that, then this table also is not for you. Because the passage goes on to say, if you don't examine yourself, then you're eating and drinking in an unworthy manner and, and there's damage that comes. For this reason, many are sick and many have even died because they've abused the Lord's table. And so there's a danger here. And yet, it is far better to be confronted with the truth of Christ and yield to him and enjoy this and remember and reflect than it is to walk away unchanged. So if God is convicting your heart about something, repent of it and forsake it. And for all of us, we need to refocus on Christ. Reset your heart on him. Draw near to him. And the Bible says he will draw near to you. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.